Hi all, and welcome to the Grieving Back to Life podcast. This is a place where we will talk and share stories around grieving, receiving, growth, and turning your pain into peace. I am your host, Lauren Cheek, and like many of you, I have experienced my fair share of loss and grieving. It's been hard to process and transition, but what I've learned through this is that a lot of us have this unprocessed pain inside, but don't feel like we can talk about it or maybe don't know how to process it. My goal here is to help hold space for people and normalize these conversations around grief. I'll be sharing tools, resources, and insights from all kinds of different experts, as well as everyday amazing humans who have gone through the battle of grief and have been able to turn their pain into peace and purpose. So let's dive in and help each other through the process of grieving back to life. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Megan Cannon coming on to share her professional and personal perspective on grief, as well as some actionable tools that you can start using right now if you are going through the grieving process. Dr. Cannon is a clinical psychologist who specializes in trauma, plant medicine, epigenetics, anxiety, depression, immunity, sexuality, and grief. She has published research on complex trauma and the modern mythos, and is the author of the new book, The Requiem, Funeral Songs and Mythopoetry of Megan K. Cannon, How the West Was Woman. We will be talking about ways you can celebrate and honor your loved ones who have passed, as well as some resources if you're struggling during this time of year. We really go deep on a lot of things today, so I'm excited to dive in. Let's get to it. Okay, everyone. Happy Sunday. Happy Sacred Sunday. It is a very special day for those of you celebrating Christmas. It is Christmas Eve. So excited and honored to have the amazing Dr. Cannon on today. She really goes deep with clients being able to help them go through the grieving process and giving them tools and lots of resources. So we're going to be able to dive into a lot of that today. She also has written an incredible book, and I know that that too has so much depth to it and I'm excited to kind of touch on that and really go into how not only your own life and inspiration of your own experiences with loss, but really um, being able to help people in your experience with the work you've done has really gone into the book and everything that you're doing with your patients now. So welcome, Dr. Megan Cannon. I am so honored and pleased to have you on today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I feel really, really special. (laughs) (laughs) for getting the invitation that the idea that I even have anything to contribute to this is just kind of an honor. So, Oh my gosh, of course. Well, and I was inspired just from me and you when we sat down and just had a coffee and we're able to really dive deep. And I always appreciate when, you know, you can have those deep dives with people right off the bat and you're not in that kind of like surface level conversation. But also, I am not a lady of small talk at all. No, I love it. And I'm so here for it. And I think also just like your background and the fact that you're such a badass and you have all this (laughs) training and experience, you know, backing kind of all of the things that you're teaching. And so I'm just excited to be able to share um, all of your insight here as a resource and to be able to really kind of go deep today and to share also for anybody listening who is going through grief and going through anything over the holidays, over, you know, this time period, it can just be so difficult. And I'll speak for myself. It has been a 
crazy year. And I know there's so many people that can relate to that. And I think over the holidays, grief is something that really, you know, flares up for people. The emotion really uh, kicks in heavy. And so just off the bat, diving deep on that note, I would love to kind of just start it off by talking about that. And then we can kind of come back around to all of the amazing work and resources as we kind of go through go through the whole combo. Is that okay? Yeah, definitely. Just lead the way. I'm at your mercy. Yes, Let's yes, do this. Babe, I'm excited. All right. <laughs> Dom me through the grief situation. <laughs> I am excited because I think We've had, you know, some off camera conversations around just hearing a lot of commonalities. And I think, you know, we all grieve in such different ways and have such different expressions, but at the same time are so similar. And so mm-hmm. what's something you would say that you see that's very common in a lot of your work and with your patients during this time that comes up that that you could help kind of talk somebody through? I think, especially like in Western culture, there is this stigma and kind of like strange principles around what grief is supposed to look like. Like it is supposed to be polite. It is supposed to be processed. It is supposed to be managed. It's supposed to be compartmentalized. You're supposed to look and behave and feel certain ways. And unfortunately, grief is not that. It is a beast of its own. It is its own monster. It is its own beauty. It is its own mess. It's very messy. Grief in itself is very messy. And I like to think of like the dark feminine in essence when I think about the grief because it's so deep from within. It's like from the underworld. Mm -hmm. And um, I think a perfect example would be uh, there's this show called Six Feet Under, which I'm sure like a plenty of people have heard of. <laughs> it's kind of a big deal on HBO. I think in like the opening episode, the undertaker's son who has to come home and take care of the business was talking about how much it bothered him that through the grieving process, we as a culture do not allow for big emotions. We do not allow for the big negative emotions. We do not mm-hmm. allow for uh, displays of emotion, like anything that's like out of control. And he was talking about, I can't remember if he was in Italy or Greece, but he's on a small Island and this funeral was happening. And like the wife of the man who had died had just wailed from the bottom of her soul and kind of flailed herself, um, on to the like casket of her husband. And he said that he had never seen something so beautiful. And I re- that really, really hit home with for me because that is something I, in my depths, knew to be true. Um, I actually have an Italian aunt who's, uh, nep- uh, whose younger brother did the same thing to his father, uh, his father's casket. But yeah, I, I, really in- I really relate to the polarities of life. And one of my favorite quotes is, um, only love and death change all things. And it is not until you've been through the process of death, been through the process of grief, that you can really touch on that. Um, The idea that there's so much similarity between birthing and dying. The idea that only love and death are these absolutes that you cannot change. Like uh, they are unshakable and they have the power to completely alter your life in ways you never even imagined. All the noise just goes away. All that is left is truth and honesty and rawness and grief in particular, like no one talks about the anger that comes up with grief. 
and it feels so inappropriate when it happens, but there's so much anger and there's so much regret mm-hmm. and there is so much woulda, shoulda, coulda, and there's so much um, mixed emotions. And we, I think as a culture, do not permit for all that messiness that happens. But it's so beautiful if you really lean into the process and as you like to say, give yourself grace yeah, and let grief, this beautiful thing that is death, the honor to have known somebody that died, the honor to have felt something so deeply, whether it, even if it's not death, even if it's just like a breakup or tragedy in some sort, the idea that you loved something so deeply that you are given this honor to experience this grief because you experienced life in its fullness um, to have loved something so dearly, to have lost it. If you let it have its way with you, if you let grief be powerful with you, if you surrender, that's why I like the kind of feminine aspect of like surrendering to this like gigantic energy that you cannot control. Cause like Young used to say, you know, that which you resist persists. So yeah. <laughs> I think, there's a, I think the number one thing I would probably leave patients with or friends with or family members with is the permission for it to happen, to let it have its way with you. Because the more you grieve, it's like the more you're paying reverence to the person that you lost, even yeah. if it doesn't look, even if it doesn't look pretty, like even if it's just and it that normally it doesn't. Oh yeah, my gosh, it, never it does normally it. doesn't, right? It's usually messy and I think that's so beautiful. You touched on so many great points. And I think you're right that we don't really give ourselves that space to really feel deep and to really lean into, uh, you know, unpacking the heaviness. And Mm -hmm. I always say it's not until you like shine light onto darkness or those heavy kind of emotions and feelings that you hold on to that you can release it and unpack it Mm -hmm. and transmute Mm -hmm. it. And I think that the one of, my intentions of starting this podcast was really to be able to help hold space for that because I was shocked when I experienced it with losing my partner. I was so blindsided. It was out of nowhere. I was Mm -hmm. devastated. I mean, I'm still devastated, but I think it's one of those things where I had no, I mean, there's obviously plenty of tools. We have the internet, right? There's plenty of things Mm -hmm. out there, but I wasn't having these conversations with my family and my friends and my peers. And it's just not a normal thing, I think, to go deep on, like you Mm -hmm. said, and being able to hold space for one another and know how to uh, facilitate that and how to really do that with grace and with love and with patience, I think, Mm -hmm. too. Because a lot of the time when I was first experiencing it, all I needed really was for somebody to like listen, right? And Mm -hmm. sometimes that's all you need. Or sometimes you just need a hug or sometimes you just need somebody to, you know, go on a walk with you and, you know, whatever it is, it's like you kind of go through these different waves, but we don't know how to express it and talk Mm -hmm. about it. And like 100%. 100%. That is. You see that so commonly in your work, but I think for the mainstream public, we don't have these conversations. Why do you think that is? I remember specifically, um, and I think you and I have talked about this in private, but I remember 
I've kind of been the leader of like the new era of like grief with my family because both of my parents have very, very traumatic uh, childhoods. My dad in particular is surrounded by death. So I I, I want to try not to talk too much about my personal family life because I know I go deep into it like in an episode. We that's did have an amazing episode. Yeah, yeah. that's coming out soon. So, so we, we did go Though. So please forgive me if I repeat a couple things. Um, but yeah, my dad in particular, all the men in his family, like his father was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, which was at the time a, multi, uh, a terminal illness when my dad was probably like, I think four or five years old. And so he died very slowly in front of my dad and he died at only 40 years old. And then my grandfather, my great grandfathers, my dad's grandfathers had both stepped in to parent my dad while his dad was sick. And they both dropped dead in front of my dad before his father even passed away. So every man in my dad's life had died before he was 18 years old. And so he had this whole thing like death was coming for him. Mm -hmm. It was really interesting. I think I talk about panic attacks and how intergenerational trauma works Mm -hmm. um, and how that ended up without even knowing getting passed down to me um, in the next episode. But yeah, so grief was really not practiced in my family. My father was not even allowed to go to his own father's funeral because they they claimed they were were worried it was going to upset him, but it wasn't really about him. It was about the adults in the room that couldn't handle the big feelings. But yeah, right. and then my mother really, really focuses on the fact that ritual of grief was not a practice in her family. And it, she's really struggled with it her whole life because of it. And so I kind of became the one that like put my sword in the sand and said, you know, something's got to change. And so parents gratefully have really kind of let me, especially once we lost my brother, um, really let me, I guess, lead by example. I'm definitely, definitely not the leader of my family, but I definitely am the evolutionary (laughs) part of my family. The three of us goes, my father, my mother, my, and myself, and including my stepfather as well. They have kind of let me light the way of a new path. And they have kind of like followed me down that path. And it's been really beautiful watching that alchemize because my parents are definitely, you know, my mom's kind of the organizer. My dad's definitely the masculine, you know, just different stuff like that. But they've, they've really let me, light my own way and have kind of followed me down that evolution. So for instance, when I was asking people about like what stuff they would want to talk about, I have a lot of friends actually close to me. It was shocking when I thought about yesterday who I wanted to reach out to, to see what they wanted to talk about. I just didn't realize how many people so close to me have lost someone very close to them. Mm. And these are all people I love like very dearly. I reached out to even a friend that I have haven't seen in a long time, but I've known her since I was three years old. I've reached out to one of my very good girlfriends. I reached out to a friend of mine whose father was just diagnosed with terminal cancer. And it was just so surreal because they were all echoing thoughts of things that you and I have talked about, but it's not talked about mainstream. Right. So when I asked my mother, what kind of stuff <laughs> would you want to hear about on a podcast she goes oh my god Megan like I so avoid my grief if I'm being realistic that's the truth is I don't you know I don't talk about it I don't talk about it right 
So my mother and my father and that whole generation, they're all baby boomers. And grief was just not something talked about. It was absolute repression. It was absolute just, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just keep going. Like it was, was, you were tough or you were weak. You were tough or you were weak. And you just never could let, there was no capacity for vulnerability or like negative sensation. That's just how they were raised is it just wasn't normal. It reminds me so much of mental health. I feel like, like you were kind of saying, like, you know, our parents' generation, their generate, their their parents' generation. So mm-hmm. a couple of generations back, that was all they really knew was to suppress it, mm-hmm. deal with it, suck it up. Uh, that was being know, strong to them. That was you know, like yeah, <laughs> it was never openly talked about or shared, or you know, going Not therapy was seen as like you had a problem. And so I think that we've come a long way as a culture and a society of being a lot more educated around that and how to help ourselves and help one another, you know, have those tools and resources. Yeah, definitely. Isn't something that is openly talked about or shared. And I think that the thing that surprised me when I started having a lot of these conversations with people and sharing my experience is with uh, losing people I love is that well, A, there's a lot of commonality and similarities that we mm-hmm. all go through but don't talk about, um, mm-hmm. very similar to mental health, and that we all – well, not we all. A lot of us carry around this baggage that we don't deal with, we don't unpack, and we don't talk about. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I was shocked to find out that some good friends that I've been you know, close with for a while now have experienced grief that they've never shared. They've never mm-hmm. talked about, mm-hmm. they've never unpacked it. And, you know, I have a few of them on the podcast coming up in, later in the season. <laughs> and so uh, there's some great stories, but I think that was the intention was holding space to share and to be able to bring that to light and, you know, normalize some of these conversations because it's such a huge part of life. It is like it it's and inevitable, right? It's the only <laughs> thing that is guaranteed in life is death. Not in a morbid yeah. way, in a beautiful way. I think it can be a really beautiful thing because then you really are aware of how precious time is and how intentional mm-hmm. you can be with it. Mm-hmm. All pathologies lead back to like fear of death. Everything that is symptomatic in a toxic way or a inconvenient way or anything that inhibits you from actually living is like the fear of death at its core, even relationally, like in your relationships, because everything is based on survival. Like all defense mechanisms are based on survival. It's really interesting. You talk about the discussion. What I always think of too is it's, and I think you and I have talked about this a little bit, like one-on-one is I was so beyond shocked at how uncomfortable people were with the fact that it had happened. And then at the same time, the most ridiculous things that people do and say when it happens. It's so interesting. I, I know we did have this conversation and again, the commonalities of like people just aren't really sure how to handle it and what to do and what to say. And shockingly, the two first questions out of most people's mouth uh, were, how are you? And are you okay? And I was like, um, uh, I am terrible yes. and I'm not okay. I'm actually not okay at all. 
are you okay and, with the fact that I'm not okay? Because right. that feels like why you're asking me that right. question. And then it was like it made it even more awkward. And I know there was no malicious intent. I know that everyone meant it with love. And I think it's just it goes to show that I don't think a lot of the times we even stop and process the words we're using. We just kind of, uh, you know, say what is to be expected. Like, yeah. it's so funny to me. Like, when you see someone in passing, you're like, hi, how are you? And then they're like, good, good, good. Okay. And you don't, like, <laughs> you don't even care. It's like, you just say it because it's like the thing to say. You know what I mean? It's so interesting. My favorite to thing is at the grocery store I, when the cashier, like, I'm a Whole Foods whore, so forgive me. But like, I go to Whole Foods <laughs> and like any organic farmer's market all the time. Um, And so I, my favorite thing is when they ask me how I'm doing is I actually take a deep breath. <laughs> And I'll be like, do you really want to know? I'll be like, "Eh," like, you know, like, and then I'll answer them honestly. And they're like, oh my God. I'm like, yeah, it's okay though. And then I would walk on by, (laughs) but I try to take that one moment to not just give them like the knee jerk, like I'm fine reaction. And then it is like surface level. (laughs) Yeah. Knee jerk questions that we come up with, but I think around grief, you know, it's fine in the day to day. Like, you know, no one really thinks twice about it, but I think when it comes to grieving and when it comes to such a sensitive time in somebody's life, whether you're experiencing it or somebody you love is experiencing it, everything is heightened. Everything is sensitive. And I think if you're in so much pain and somebody says something like that, it can be just like one more trigger on top of like everything else. And so I think just awareness, you know, having conversations like these, having awareness around what you're saying, the words you're using with people and how you really approach situations, I think is <laughs> needs to be more uh, normalized, I'll say. It, it was very strange. Also, mind you, it's Christmas. It's, I, the irony is that it's Christmas Eve that everyone's listening this to. And then within my book, I, I go into it like further in the next episode about the mythos of Jesus. And that's really kind of like what a lot of my storyline and mythos is based on because I've studied it in depth. I'm very um, Gnostic when it comes to my understanding of religion. And my parents are not religious people. They're very intelligent. They're probably the smartest people I know on the planet. And that's why I respect them so much when it comes to like their advice and their wisdom. They're just such integrated human beings, but they are not religious. And I remember my father in particular, I was so protective of them when my brother passed away. I was so extremely protective of them because I knew how vulnerable they were. It was like the most unnatural thing in the world for a parent to lose their child. Of course. And it, was, it happened so tragically. It was, I, you know, I have my own feelings that I talk about in the next episode around that, but like I was so hyper aware that it was their only son, that it was their only other child, that it was their baby, and that they lost him. And I know on a clinical level and a personal level, like what comes up for people, especially parents, when they lose a child. And so, all I could do was show up for them and protect them and like be there for them, not talk them through it, but protect their process and just be present for them so that they weren't alone. And I remember it was probably like the weekend Mm -hmm. after it happened. It was like, I was within the week that it happened. I remember being at my grandmother or my grandmother's house, I believe. And um, my father was there and I, I, I can't remember. It had to have been within a couple weeks, 
So an extended family member had called my dad on the phone to like offer condolences and they just started going on and on about like religious rhetoric and just started mm-hmm. saying like, he's with Jesus now, he's in a better place. You know, there's a purpose to this. Like he's with who he's supposed to be. And then she just started spouting off a lot of like evangelical stuff at my dad. Um, and then like in a very witnessy type way, And it enraged me on like a very, very visceral level because in the way she communicated it, it completely had to do with her own insecurities and her own vulnerabilities around death and the her own judgment. Yeah. 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 So it was just, she needed my father because she had had her own loss, which was how she was trying to like relate to my dad. And so she took, her belief system and imposed it upon my father in the middle of his grief process. Mm. And she needed him to believe what she believed in order for her to feel secure. And it made me so enraged because the last thing a parent wants to hear is, well, he's better off. Like, you know, like he's, you know, he's with the person. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's people really get uncomfortable with death and the afterlife and like there's so much fear because none of us know truly what happens after and so it's like we need everyone to kind of believe as a collective the same thing so you can feel safe in your own process so that was just a really interesting thing and that came up a lot I just noticed the whole, you know, you everyone has their classic sayings, like, I'm so, so sorry for your loss. I'm sorry for your condolences. Like, he's with Jesus now is like a very common thing. Um, mm-hmm. uh, except for our Jewish friends who definitely don't <laughs> go on saying that. And like, we have a lot of diverse um, family friends, and we have a lot of diverse um, religious friends. And it was just very interesting. The most unexpected people kind of would pop up and really, really want to push their beliefs about the afterlife onto grieving parents. And that was, that Mm. was a real struggle for me because it didn't leave room for my parents' own expression of doubt. It didn't leave room for my parents' own expression of pain. It didn't leave room for my parents' own expression of resentment. It didn't leave room for my parents' own expression of anger. Like that is for me, I knew on a visceral level to be the important thing, to be the priority and everyone else that's not in it kind of needs to put their other stuff aside because that's all relationships are is showing up right. for somebody. That's yeah. all it is. hundred <laughs> percent. I think that's so beautiful. And really you touched on, I think the key to all of it of how you can support somebody through grief is to just hold space and to mm-hmm. be there in whatever capacity that they need you. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes that's just literally listening. I think sometimes that's literally just sitting there and being there, not saying anything. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think that it's, like you said, being able to almost like bite your tongue and hold back your own opinions and views and mm-hmm. hold space and create space and make that person feel safe enough to express mm-hmm. and process their own version of grieving and their own mm-hmm feelings because it is so different for everyone. Everyone has to go through it in whatever way resonates and aligns and Mm -hmm. try and impose their own beliefs. And especially when you get into religion, it's not, they may think it's helping, but it, it, I think it's just more so 
sometimes triggering or like, Mm -hmm. you know, it could be the exact right thing to say, or it could be the exact wrong thing. And it could just Mm -hmm. totally send the person off the edge. And so I think (laughs) you don't know. And I think that's where going back to holding space uh, for somebody is really the key because that's when you can be able to help them go into their own process, I think, like, exactly. with, like your parents too. But I would love to touch a little bit more on your book. And I know that even like yeah. the name goes deeper into this, but um, <laughs> I want to know kind of just like a little bit of inspiration of why you wrote it and a little bit about it. And uh, we'll link it in the show notes too, so everyone can check it out and uh, buy a copy. But I would love to kind of uh, go into that a little bit more. So it's funny. I was laughing with Lauren because um, she asked about wanting to tell. I'm like, for those who are listening, I was laughing with Lauren about uh, the title <laughs> of my book is actually really long. Um, I originally did this as a dissertation and it was a research project. And the results were so good of the research. Unexpectedly, it was very it was it was a big thing. Like I could, couldn't believe how well the research came out that I actually did decide to publish it. And so one of the research questions in the book, funny enough, it was like one of the last questions was, um, now that you've completed the book, how do you feel about the title? And everyone was like, oh my God, it's perfect. It's so on point <laughs> like for the experience of reading the book, because that's what the book is meant to be. It's supposed to be an experience. So the full title of the book is The Requiem, Funeral Songs, and Mytho Poetry of Megan K. Cannon, How the West Was Woman. And I was so intentional about the layers of that title and what it meant because I wanted it to fully encapsulate the journey and I wanted it to bring past, present and like outcome like into like one title. It was very difficult to pick a title at first. And then I just, the moment I landed on this, I was like, that's it. And if anyone had any complaints, like that's their problem. (laughs) But it's a full odyssey. So it's a modern day odyssey. It's based on my life. It's a memoir. It's creative nonfiction. I am, like I said earlier, I'm really, really huge into mythos. Um, I even studied the mythos of Jesus. And I uh, said, the Gnostics in particular, for instance, when they talk about the creating of the Jesus mythos, that it was a synthesis of pagan myths, Egyptian myths, Jewish myths, myths all combined into one, and it was made adaptable for the modern day Jewish person. So what I did was I took the stories that we grew up on, the fairy tales we grew up on, the um, Greek myths that we grew up on, and I synthesized them into a modern myth and poetic way. So myth of poetry in a way that was adaptable and relatable to the modern person in 2023. And so the story starts out with a great love story. So I base it on Shakespeare in the very, in like, I call it the first act. It's a Shakespearean Romeo and Juliet story, but as we know, Romeo and Juliet is actually a tragedy. And so I survived a near-death experience, and that near-death experience forever changed me. Like, I needed, I spent years journeying trying to understand, like, what I had experienced, and I also spent years learning about who I was and how it had changed me. And so I had developed complex trauma through the experience And then I did everything I could through Western medicine in order to heal myself. But there was a very significant ceiling on like what Western medicine provided and what I was able to do. And I was like, I 
need more. <laughs> like that's something I ask my patients whenever they come in. And it's something that my psychologist asked me. He said, what's your intention here? Do you want to le- learn how to cope? And I said, no, I want it gone. I want it done. I want it. I want to heal fully. And he said, okay. Yeah. And so then he took me on this journey and he was very much um, a guy that I call him the old wizard um, the, or the, the good doctor in my book. And he taught me everything he knew. He spent years mentoring me and really he leans originally towards like Jungian psychology because there's so much, uh, I had really, really traumatic dreams that like affected me on a, a very physical level whenever I woke up and it would cause like problems throughout the day. So that's kind of where he put me in on an intro level. And so he started teaching me about symbolism and he started teaching me about synchronicity and he, you know, then it kind of brought magic into psychology and mental health and that like made it very, very fun. And then I turned to, it was my 30th birthday. I called my parents and I said, I am miserable. I, I had hit a cog in a wheel. I was working as a trauma and addiction counselor. I was living in Pasadena. I was like, you know, I had a very successful life. Like I was on boards of huge philanthropic boards. Like everything was good on paper. But I realized that this was as far as I was going to go. And I wanted to kind of open the door to my cage that I had created Um, I had perfected all within the cage. (laughs) So I wanted to open that door and I wanted to go see what was out in the unknown. And so I ended up quitting my job and packing up my bags. And I drove out to the middle of Colorado to go be with my best friend from childhood, who was like this very witchy woman. And by the way, this was like 2016. So it's so funny because people would still cringe back then if you said the word witch out loud. Um, (laughs) Up in the mountains of Colorado. And I ran around with all these witchy women for like weeks And they just, it was what I imagined, like my internal process was their external process on a daily basis. It was like being in Hogwarts. (laughs) They just like, they lived this very magical life. It was very naturopathic. I'm huge into epigenetics and that was just very normal for them. And so I picked up everything that they had to teach me and I decided not to go home. So I spent the next six months traveling, just following my intuition, traveling around the Western US by myself, seeing everything I'd ever wanted to see, doing anything that had scared me, climbing every mountaintop. I did this one huge, like very, very risky, deadly hike into a place that I had dreamed of seeing for years. And when I came out of it, I could barely walk. And I was like, I want to be a doctor. Like, and so I like went and that was it. And I was like, okay, I'm going back to school. I'm going to go up to San Francisco and I'm going to like, like get schooled on everything that makes me uncomfortable. And, you know, I just was a wild woman, like to the max. And um, I also got introduced I, when I, around those people, I started hearing about ayahuasca. And so I, at the time did not drink and I identified as a recovering alcoholic at the time because the disease model of addiction was really just like all the capacity I had for knowledge and understanding of like what my experience was even though I I'll go into that later on a different podcast (laughs) I was like let me let me sidebar that one for later but we'll um, dive deep on another episode that's that's just such a heavy subject I could go so deep into that so they started talking to me about ayahuasca and like what it was and where it was from and what it could do and I I said, oh, that sounds really cool, but you know, alcoholic, like I can't do it. And they looked at me like I was crazy for responding that way. And they said, Megan, you know, there's actually studies that proves that ayahuasca can cure alcoholism. And I was kind of like dumbfounded because I didn't have the tools or like cute comeback to (laughs) 
fight that. And it kind of hit my ego in a real way. And they said, they're like, you know, it's going to start calling to you. Like you're going to hear about it more and it's going to draw you in. You're eventually going to do it. And so I went about my journey and did all these things. And then I went back home to go back to school. And so I was going to finish my undergrad program very quickly down in Pasadena at a private school called Pacific Oaks. I managed to do like two years worth of school in, in a semester and a half. It was like, I was pretty impressed with myself with what I was able to do because I've never been academically driven. So it's fun when you become like really good at, when you're so passionate about, about something, how you suddenly become like really good at it. And all of a sudden like, oh, I'm a 4.0 student. This is great. I can get into college I want. I went through something very, I had been out in the wild for all these months, like living this very wonderful and new adventurous lifestyle. And then I came home to Pasadena and suddenly almost like the cage was back a little bit. And like all those little things I had gotten to kind of ignore, like while I was out on the road kind of started to creep in. And I remember I just went through some breakup. It was just like a very, you know, typical breakup with some guy who it was, I think it was like the, I think we, you know, hot girls get dumped too. I got dumped like right before uh, New Year's Eve. And, um, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't great. He wasn't like, I, I go into it in the book, but regardless, I remember when it happened, you know, he was, he had done some pretty terrible things to me and I had no ability to process it. I was very dissociated because that was my way of coping was kind of like shutting it out, staying strong. Mm-hmm. I always make jokes with my parents that like, they dissociate so well in order to cope that they made me too good at dissociating. <laughs> and so I like, I kind of hit this point where I cracked and I was aware that something really terrible had happened, that someone had been very unkind to me and that my heart was broken, but I couldn't feel it. I was so aware that I was needing to experience grief, but my body would not let me that there was something wrong with the way I processed pain. And so the rest of my story and my journey goes in. So I turned to the good doctor and I told him about this. And I said, you know what? Like I kind of had it at that point. And I talked about this in the next, our next episode. I said, like I hit, it wasn't even about the science. It wasn't about wanting to cure anything. I just wanted to meet God because I was so angry. (laughs) Because I did everything right. I had done everything through my life the way I was supposed to. And nothing was, I was just so hurt and I was in so much pain. And I just had so many questions for God. And you go through the death experience in ayahuasca. And so I wanted to meet God because I was like, he's got some explaining to do. Like, I have some questions. I want to know why things turned out the way they did. And so when I eventually went to do ayahuasca for the first time, it just, I had only planned on going once. And it turned into this miraculous journey of healing. It was just so insane. I went for one thing and I got an entire universe in return. And through that return, I got to understand genetics and science and biology and the psyche on all these different levels I would have never been able to just simply intellectually comprehend. And it became my fascination and it became my specialty became what I fully threw myself into, like as a being and as a professional. And it was so beautiful to see the way intergenerational trauma shows up in the body. And so that, you know, time isn't linear. Time is a river and people forget that a river is circular. And so all that which you or your ancestors had not dealt with 
in a secular way will show up again the next season around. It's going Mm -hmm. to come for you. It will always come for you. So it was really, it was so tragic because I understood how these stories of all the people that came before me exist in my body, how they exist. But then at the same time, they exist in my body. And that's so beautiful. And so that has so sincerely helped me through the process of grieving and death. I have a very, very beautiful relationship with ancestry and like the ethers. I think someone I ran into uh, back in the summertime, I wish I could remember his name. We follow each other on Instagram, but he overheard someone asking me about my book. We were at a party and he said, you do ayahuasca? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, I just did it for the first time. He told me about his brother passing away almost the exact same way my brother had passed away. And he went And he had the same feeling, except it was his older brother. And my brother is my younger brother. And he said he went to go do ayahuasca for the first time two weeks after his brother passed away. And he got to talk to his brother. And that was like the most beautiful thing ever. So anyways, the point of my title is that the Requiem was kind of like, that was my own little empowerment. Like it was my Requiem. This is my Requiem. Like this is my sword. This is my, this is my power. And then funeral songs, I just think... You know, in every religion, song is contact with God in one way or another. I lived in San Francisco with Hare Krishna monks from Mumbai for many years. I'm still very close with them. It was one of the best experiences ever. And so they did kirtan like all day long. So her house always smelled of like really lovely (laughs) vegetarian Indian food and kirtan just all day long. We actually had a temple in the home. And the Hare Krishnas, that's the reason they sing, is to be in touch with God. And through every religion, song allows you, there's like this universe, like the Om, like there's a universal understanding that there's something divine about song. So I Mm. liked funeral songs to me was very, very important because I wanted to touch on death in the title. I thought it was very, very important. And I did mytho poetry because it's my mythos that will live through time. And the reason certain stories consistently get retold whether they be with different character names or you know different settings it's kind of the same myth or the same fairy tale that gets passed down through time to our ancestors. that's why indigenous cultures are storytelling cultures because that's how they pass down their wisdom so this was my wisdom through poetry and mythos to like retell and pass down like to like other people, whether it be people of my time or people down the road of Megan K. Cannon. Um, that was my first editor. <laughs> he was like, I think you need to put your name in the title and just like own it. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah. He was like, I just think that's badass. And I was like, you don't think it's narcissistic? He's no, it's perfect. And I was like, oh, no, everyone needs a little bit of narcissism. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of healthy narcissism. <laughs> as a female. And then how the West was woman was because that was how I go very in depth to the collective grief. My story was very much birds on its own. I did not know what was going to come of it. I had an intention and I had, I went on a pilgrimage to find my voice and then I let it take on a life of its own. I very, very much birthed it. Amazing. I love how intentional you are with every single layer and detail of the title and the whole book, really. It's an incredible story. Thank you. Thank you. And I love that you bring in so many layers and depth of like the spirituality, but the science and the the reasoning and the logic and and then also kind of that story element of it feeling like it's you want to keep going because you want to understand what's going to happen next you know yeah oh Um, it's so fun (laughs) 
it's great. And I love that you've you've spun it in this playful way and been able to take, you know, so many deep lessons and share it in such a such a beautiful way. That's actually a really funny thing to touch on, I think, is playfulness. I think it is so important. My parents talk about this a lot. And I try to bring this in with patients, especially because patients come to me in such a heavy and fearful way to like tell me their story that they have so much shame around or they have so much pain around. And I make it so intentional to laugh with them or even at them, like for like the more histrionic stuff that we do sometimes. Like I always laugh and I try to make play in the depths. I try to bring all the layers and let give permission for everything to be experienced. Um, you know, at my brother's memorial, and I wrote a letter to my brother, which was partially um, what I actually said at his memorial, and then I completed it. At the memorial, I said, you know, I decided I wanted to say something that wasn't traditional. I wanted to do it absolutely from the heart because my brother is my soulmate and our relationship was so complicated and so layered. And I was coming to so many things I had not dealt with came forward. And I just really wanted to express that. And that's what I owed him. And so, uh, I laugh and I talk about in the letter how we are dealing with the most tragic thing that probably could have happened to our group of family and friends as a collective. Yet, like, everyone's drunk and everyone's laughing. And our friend Heidi even started doing one of those Irish hymns. Like, she's singing an Irish bar song at the end. And, like, there's everyone's just, like, you can blow snot bubbles and look like Alice Cooper and also laugh at the same time, like, at a memorial. Like, all these things are okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it can was really be a fun. celebration of life too. Yeah. And I think and having the duality yeah. of both feeling yeah. all the things at once. Um yeah. and especially, you know, like cherishing the memories and being grateful and happy about that, but then also being so devastated and sad. <laughs> um, it's all okay. It's, it's all, all okay. okay. Yes, a hundred percent. So I want to kind of touch on that a little bit more and For anybody who's maybe experiencing grief for the first time or is really going through it right now and is really having a hard time getting through the holidays, what is something that maybe a resource or a tool that um, you would recommend for people kind of experiencing that right now? When you ask me that, the major thing that comes to mind is the fact that a lot of people, because I know anxiety is kind of like a collective diagnosis right now, like shading anxiety from panic attacks is very important. And I know that this has been something that came up for me, that something that comes up for patients, something that has come up for friends is the number one cause of panic attacks is bereavement. So it is so interesting that when you lose somebody to death, you know, and bereavement can be, again, it can be relational. It can be a a breakup or something like that. Um, I know I only talked about like a minuscule breakup in um, earlier, but like I said, it was just, it was the repetitive of like, oh, I've been here before. There's something wrong with the way that I'm feeling this way. This guy's not even a big deal, but it's echoing this feeling that I know that there's something wrong. Yeah. Right, right. It was helping me understand my own body and my own experience. Um, but yeah, panic attacks are so real for those who are experiencing significant oh, yeah. grief. I want to make sure that if, that I say, if you are worried about your health, go get, I think it's important to go get a health check. It's important for your own mental sanity. It is very important to go get a check, get an EKG, make sure your heart's okay. 
And then once you've done all that, acknowledge the fact that you are having panic attacks. And it's terrifying and torturous to go through that experience after you've lost somebody. And I've seen my girlfriends go through it. I've seen my parents go through it. I've seen myself go through it. You lose someone in a horrific way. And then suddenly you think you're dying and you can't control it. And it's like, it's physically as though you're having a heart attack and you don't know how to control it. And I want to bring up, I have a friend named Terry. Um, she's bionic breath work on um, Instagram. I took one of her breath work classes and it was amazing because breath to me is very much related to panic. Whenever I'm having a panic attack, there's a lot of fear. Everything's a trigger um, when you are suffering from bereavement and having panic attacks. It's really hard for me. I skipped a couple invitations because I was so worried about accessing, you know, triggering the panic of breath. And I went and did one of her breathwork classes and it was super, super amazing. And the problem is, is that it's very, very hard to regulate your body when you're having a panic attack. So I wanted to bring in two different breathing forms. I think when you are starting to feel the uh, panic, because I know holidays in particular are so triggering for people because all the past memories come flooding forward. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, you're surrounded by a lot of people. And then there's like the ritual of the holidays, regardless of like what you practice. Like it's very overwhelming. And so your body starts to speak for itself. And so you're not super in touch with yourself when it comes on. And so there's two breathing practices that she highly suggests. So like breathing and it's like two sharp inhales in and then one long exhale out. And I do really enjoy that one. And she also suggested box breathing. So box breathing, which you will often see in um, sometimes I practice it in yoga classes, but it's five seconds in, hold it for five seconds, five seconds out, hold it. That is very important to to know how your breath affects your nervous system, to know how your breath affects your body, to know how your breath affects your flight or flight instincts. I think that's very, 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 very crucial. Grounding down in your perineum is also super important. So get out of your head. Get into your root chakra. I know your perineum is a sensitive part, but it's funny if you focus on it, all of a sudden you feel so much more grounded onto the earth and everything kind of releases upwards, if that makes sense. So that's one thing I think for crisis moments, I think it's a huge deal. I think in the moment of crisis, that's probably my biggest thing I would want in this amount of time we have is to really have those two resources for those who are alone, especially yeah, absolutely. I think yeah. that's so, so helpful. And being able to really lean into, you know, those tools that you can pull out of your toolkit immediately if you are going through a panic attack or, you know, mm-hmm. a wave of emotion that just feels so overwhelming. I have been mm-hmm. there. I've literally had meltdowns on the sidewalk. I have been triggered in stores. Like it is, you know, sometimes it just comes on out of nowhere. And so mm-hmm. I can totally relate and empathize with that. And I think being able to just have the, the consciousness of being able to come back to your breath at all times, mm-hmm. whether you know, you're going through a panic attack or you're just kind of feeling like stuck, I think yeah. that really helps to shift the energy too. Um, yeah. And that's a huge one that we overlook. It's so simple. And focusing you know, on your breath is not enough. That's actually just going to make you more panicky. So when people are like, focus on your breath, just focus on your breath. You're like, am I even breathing? What's happening? So it's the modality of breathing. Right, the intentional, the intentional yeah. breath. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I love too that before this podcast, you reached out to a few of your 
clients and patients mm-hmm. and ask them kind of some of their rituals and some of the things that they did during the holidays to help them kind of go through it. So I would love to kind of just close on some of the tools that they suggested and used, and we can talk about that and then we can close out. But I am excited yes. to keep going deep on some of these episodes because I know we have touched on so many huge, huge things that I want to keep talking on and Mm -hmm. go deeper on. And so I'm excited to continue the combo. But what are some of the things that were coming up go through the holidays? I have a friend. I'm going to be careful with like what I acknowledge. Like I'll try to be general about what I talk about, like with what patients say. I don't mind sharing some of the stuff like friends shared more explicitly. But like a friend of mine who I love so much, she's a yoga teacher too. Um, She lost her mother at 17. She's going through the process of like what grief looks like now all these years later. And so she had acknowledged that the you know, she's got two kids, she's got a husband, she's got sisters, everything. And she called it, she called it the holiday emotional roller coaster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. And so she does get reminded around the holidays. She imagines the woulda, shoulda, couldas if her mother was still mm-hmm. here, if her even if her grandmother was still here. And so she gives those moments time. That was one thing she explicitly said. She said, mm-hmm. I allow for the negative feeling right now. And then she makes sure that she does continue the ritual. She does decorate the tree. She does watch the holiday movie. She does participate in events um, with her family and with her children. And she does leave space in between for the dips of the roller coaster that happens um, when memory comes up. I think memory is a huge thing. And it's not just the, it's not, you know, you would think it's the negative memory. It's the, it's the positive memories that seem to be very, very haunting for people. Yeah. And, and even like the smell, the song. Yeah. hundred percent. You and can get triggered in so many ways. Yeah. The fact that we reject positive memories, the fact that we're scared of the positive memories really is interesting that, you know, like I'm going to feel too much if I remember this good thing. That's- I think it's Yeah. It's almost like when you don't deal with that pain, then it's like the happy memories are sad. And it's Mm -hmm. like when you start to work through some of that pain and that grief, it's almost like the happy memories get more happy again. At least they have for me. And Mm -hmm. I've realized that for me over the last year and a half, it's really been this process of kind of coming back to finding the joy again and not only like the memory. Feeling joy even sometimes. Yeah, totally. And I think it's like almost surrendering at times of like, well, I always say, first of all, compartmentalization has been like one of my biggest tools. And for anybody going through grief that is for the first time experiencing it or Mm -hmm. has experienced it a while ago and is, you know, it still comes up for them. Compartmentalization is definitely something that's helped me of just being able to mentally compartmentalize different, I'll say, people, but overall like core values of your life. But for me, mm-hmm. I have like a drawer in my mind. Um, I picture my mind <laughs> this beautiful desk and there's all these drawers of all these people and uh, things that are important to me. And when I'm in a safe space, I can open up that drawer and pull out the boxes and really unpack it and go through it. But when I'm mm-hmm. functioning through my day to day, I have to keep the drawer closed. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to function. Like especially in the beginning, it was so emotional and so overwhelming that if I didn't keep that drawer closed, I would not have been able to get out of bed. 
And there were some days that I didn't. And I gave myself grace for that. But I also was like, okay, I want to be able to make him proud and Mm -hmm. utilize the time I do have. Like it almost felt wrong wasting any, any of it. Yeah. That was a big one with my brother. I was like, I'm going to give the love that I withheld from you to every person I come across. Like this life is for you. I was hyper aware of that. He on literally a biological level, I'm the last, I'm the last of my line even. And so he, the last, I'm the last proof that he existed like on a biological level. There's this really great line in 1883 where um, Sam Elliott talks about how like an Apache uh, warrior had told him that when people die, they like that when you love someone, they transfer into you. And so you have to live your life well, because everything that you're seeing is it's as though they get to see it too. And so he said he never want his wife always wanted to see the ocean. So he wanted to show her the Pacific ocean. And so that is why he's making the travel through the Oregon trail to the West. And so I thought that was like really, really, really big. Really beautiful. And that really resonates with me. I think that we absolutely carry forward our loved one's light. And, mm-hmm. you know, we have the the power to turn the pain into purpose and to really make, you know, the time that we have left intentional and something that they'd be proud of. And that's mm-hmm. what keeps me going every day. And so I hope yeah. that helps for anyone out there listening. I hope this <laughs> conversation has really helped. And then yeah. able to just shed some light at potentially a not so light time. We are sending you love. And I think that being able to continue to build your mental toolkit, continue to build your support system, the people around you, get professionals around you. Hire treasure trust of resources. I talked about this back in the spring on the episode that's coming out in a couple of weeks is how I have kind of a ritual with candle lighting. Like I actually travel with a photo of my brother that I put by my bedside because I light a candle at night for him. And my friend Jamie had said the same thing, I think, for her father. And then my friend Ashley had said the same thing for her mother around the hall. Like, candle lighting is, like, very, very big. Something about sacred fire and the ritual. I have a friend, Jamie, who even said that she makes celebration. So people who knew her father, she invites, not necessarily as a way of grieving, but those who knew him, she brings them collectively together to do, like, dinner parties or holiday parties. Yeah, I thought that was really good. Celebration is very, very big. And then it's also, I think one thing that was really big for me that uh, my a friend of mine, Scott, had brought up because he's going through um, his own process of um, grief was the way that people try to control the grief process and the way that it gets activated through friendship. So when my brother passed away, I really, really had to get right with who I was. I had to be very, very honest about who I was to him and who I was as a member of this village. Being the older sister was not really something I ever identified with. But the moment he died, I just remember being on my shower floor, just wailing and bawling my eyes out because I every memory I had repressed of him just came flooding, flooding through. And I am so cliche, classically, like the older sister. I feel (laughs) I'm so mean to him. (laughs) I'm so bossy. I'm very like hero oriented. I'm very like the leader, like in control when it comes to like the two of us. And I also feel like very victimized by the younger brother, like or the younger sibling. Like that was like a huge thing. And I've seen that resonate very deep. 
I had to get right with the fact that I walk a very particular way in the world that I didn't necessarily like. <laughs> that there are things that I'm not proud of. There are things that I repress. There are things as an older sister that I very, very much fell short on. And all I can do is honor him from this moment on and not take that knowledge for granted in any second that I have left on this planet. But yeah, I think getting right with who you are is the biggest way you can honor the person that you lost. Like truly, truly doing the work, like yeah. letting their death mean something, letting their life mean something, letting them live through you. It's, it's huge. It's, it's yeah. huge. Like we are all connected like, in one way or another. Yeah, I think getting clear with who you are and the person you want to become too. Like yeah, oh, absolutely. of yourself. And yeah, I love this conversation because I feel like if you're listening right now, you're our people. Like you get it. Like if you've hung in here this long, like <laughs> you are on that frequency of understanding what we're talking about here. And I think that the more you can really lean into your own journey and your own self-work and making your life intentional and leaving that legacy that you're proud of at the end of the day, you know, mm -hmm. beginning with the end in mind, all of the things, you know, that's when we really actually have success, quote unquote success, right? Yeah. Me, success is growth. And so oh, 100%. I mean, constant evolution. I, that's why nature and naturopathic medicine and animistic religions, they, it all makes so much sense to me because in the metaphoric part of my brain, when I think of a garden, it makes, I can so easily understand human beings as a collective. Like that makes, so, like the cycles of nature, you know, the health of that, which is next to you, like uh, identified patient, you know, <laughs> how you will always look different, which you'd say you're never going to look the same. Like that just makes so much sense to me. And then at the same time, there is this powerful life force that we all don't totally understand, like keeping us alive and like keeping yeah. us going. There's this really beautiful, again, I think when people think about love, they go very classically into like the low level vibration of saying like, well, what, what, if I knew I would lose them, would I have loved at all? Like what I wanted this love at all. And for me, the answer is always yes. Like always, yes. always like yes. it's like um, Achilles in the Iliad. He said, you know, the gods envy us because we are mortal. And because it talks about how everything is so precious and beautiful because we only have this small amount of time. Yeah. And I truly believe that part of the unconscious collective, the thing that brings us together, the reason why we believe in soulmates is bringing us together. Like there is something, there's a divine design and like yes. intentional reason why we come across certain people and why we're drawn to certain people. And he says, the soul is its own source of unfolding. It has its own reasons, which may only be dimly apparent to consciousness. Ooh, I think that's, I, yeah. that's good. I love that. Have you ever yeah. uh, studied Caroline Mace? Um, way back when. <laughs> she has a book called Soul Contracts. Um, yes, and I highly yes. recommend for everyone I listening, definitely. at least listen to the first chapter, the way she describes it, of that where are these souls that come on this earth journey and that all of the people, the main people that come into our lives, whether good, bad, um, and the lessons and the situations we experience are because it's predestined. It's a sold contract mm -hmm. that we agreed to, that we needed to learn those lessons throughout this lifetime yeah. in order to evolve to that next level. 
And so I thought that was a really beautiful perspective. And it helps me when I can zoom out to kind of that soul's journey, soul level, especially when it comes to grief. So it's all about being able to choose beliefs that support you and that help Mm -hmm. you. Yeah. I love being able to share these kind of little insights because I have these conversations often, but there's a lot of times (laughs) I talk to people and they're like, what are you talking about? Like what? And so I think being able to share, yeah, it, it helps, it helps everyone grow. And so that is our intention and goal here, everyone. And mm-hmm. if you are still listening, I just want to say thank you so much. And I hope that this was helpful for you listening to just be able to hopefully take some pain off your heart this season and to really go into the holidays and the new year, being able to be very intentional and really being able to lean into those feelings and that process of, of grief and giving yourself space for grace. And so Dr. Megan Cannon, thank you so, so much for coming <laughs> on today. I love our conversations. We definitely will continue these and have you back <laughs> on and dive deeper because there's so many different tools and modalities and things that we could to be able to share more. And for your full episode too, to come out, which everyone stay tuned. Your story is super powerful. And like you're a level of vulnerability and just being able to share with an open heart and also having the clinical perspective too of of both sides of it, of experiencing it and being able to feel it, but then knowing kind of how to process it and the way you explain it is so beautiful. And so I'm excited for that. I appreciate that so much. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh, of course. And if people want to work with you one-on-one, how can they experience your practices? How can they work with you? Do you also want to plug my friend, Jill Martin? I think uh, she does past life regressions. You can find her on my Instagram or I'll plug her somewhere. Everything in the show notes as well too for everyone looking for the resources. Yeah, that helped me a lot. That helped me and my dad and my mom a lot. We were using her past life regression meditations. It's like a hypnosis, but it's kind of psychedelic in the way that you experience it. But it helps you make contact with like, it's hard. It's hard to explain past life regression. She's better at it. I'll let her do it. But anyways, that is a resource. We will link in the show notes if you're interested. Um, It's really great. It's really, really great. I am working with three different clinics here in Los Angeles. I work with everything from adolescents. So I work with a lot of teenagers and I work with a lot of teenagers and their parents. Like I never thought I'd like working with children, but I really, really love it. Like I love working with teenagers. I speak their language. They make so much sense to me. And my big thing is removing all the shame from the process of development of a teenager. Like that's really big for me. And I work with a lot of teenagers and their parents. It's kind of like a cool little specialty I do I get to become like the translator for the teenagers so that you know I get to be their advocate I get to get in the parents face and I get to you know tell them what's up but at the same time I get to create like understanding for them through language so that's one thing I do um, psychedelic assisted therapy as well for adults Um, right now ketamine is the only legal psychedelic in California so we do it in a medical setting we have two locations we have one in Burbank and we have one in Sherman Oaks and that is really great for people who are dealing with anxiety and people who are dealing with depression we also have psychedelic retreats in uh, Tulum Mexico for those who want to work with psilocybin and bufo and combo and for those who are interested in ayahuasca we also have a shaman down in Peru that works with all the indigenous people that we know that work in Tulum as well. So we have an ayahuasca retreat and that happens. I think we're going to have a couple of them next year. So we go into the Amazon jungle for a week and then they also do, we hike Machu Picchu. So it's a big Peruvian trip. So 
we have that as well. Um, and then I'm also working in Santa Monica where I work with women. So women's health is like a very, very important thing to me. I work with women with trauma, women with anxiety, women with depression, women with intergenerational trauma, which always comes up no matter what, like no matter what your symptomology is, like intergenerational trauma pops up. And I also work with women going through fertility treatment, postpartum. I have doula training. Um, so that I, I like to create agency and empowerment in every time I meet with a patient. I like each patient to feel very, very purposeful when they leave. I like them to have a little hop in their step. I like them to feel like creating their own hero's journey, like the moment they leave my office. I like to be a part of that beginning, a part of that life force. And so I work with everyone. We have three different locations. I do do online work. I do in-office work in Burbank, and I do in-office work in Santa Monica, and I do in-office work in Sherman Oaks. So if you think, for instance, that I would be a match, please check the links below so that I can connect you to the different clinics. And we also, I work with some other amazing people too. So if I'm not available, I have plenty of people I can refer you to. And there's different people with specialties. Like for instance, EMDR, I have a ton of colleagues that do EMDR, which is really great for grief and trauma work. Incredible. Incredible. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I feel like that is a wealth of knowledge and resources and abundance of just having professionals that can really support you through this journey. If you are struggling right now, if you are needing help, don't. You don't need to go through it alone. Reach out. You know, if you feel like, oh, my friends don't get it. My family doesn't get it. No one gets it. Mm -hmm. People get it. There are professionals that can help you through this and you're not alone. You don't have to experience it alone. Well, thank you again. And we will wrap it up. I know we could just talk all day. I feel like we have such incredible (laughs) conversations, but you will definitely have to come back on and we will dive deep for everyone listening out there. That is all. Sending you love and light. And we will see you back here next Sunday. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. That's another episode of Grieving Back to Life podcast. Be sure to like, subscribe, and follow for more. And tune in every Sunday for new episodes. Follow us on Instagram, Grieving Back to Life. Or check out our website, grievingbacktolifepodcast.com for resources and more tips and tools for helping you grieve with grace and turn your pain into peace and purpose. See you then.